0: So I, gotta, I got something to tell you, it's going to be hard to believe, okay? Um, I was an awkward kid. I know, I know. Any other awkward kids in the room? Anybody else say they were awkward? It's about half of you that are honest. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, I was an awkward kid. I, I'm still, like, I'm also an awkward adult. Like, I just, I just, <laughs> listen, don't point at people. <laughs> like, like, you raise your hand like awkward kids, awkward adults, and you start pointing at the person next to you. Don't point. Um, No, I'm an awkward adult, but hey, listen, so here's the truth. If you're in the room and you're a little awkward, all right, you kind of know it, you're aware of it. This is a great morning for you because the awkwardness that you've experienced is going to give you just a little bit of a contextual insight into the passage that we're going to study. It's just going to help you a little bit and you'll see it. Now, we've got a a kind of a longer setup before we jump into first Peter chapter 4 but it's important to walk through it I think to get our mind just where it needs to be as we study the text but I get it It, it's hard to be awkward it's hard to be a cool kid as well I understand if you're the cool kid I get it life was hard for you too right as the cool kids see you kinda face the bondage of fear right? I mean, you're tempted to be people pleasers and you're afraid not to conform because you have much to lose. You are socially rich. And man, to be tempted by that, to be enslaved by those social riches is a real thing. What if you lost all of that? That's a scary thought. But for us awkward people we know the realities of what is lost we know the realities of those experiences we know what it means to be an outsider to the larger society or the larger group around us we've kind of experienced it we've grown accustomed to being misunderstood at times to being shunned or ridiculed or slandered and that constant like you know, self-questioning and insecurity. We, we've kind of grown accustomed to that. And one of the things that I think is somewhat odd about us just as sinful, created beings is that as we age, we really don't grow out of that. I just feel like we should, but we really don't. We, we tend to either, one, learn to conform to social expectations, or two, isolate to groups who share our social expectations so either we conform to everybody else or we find a group of people like us and we just isolate to that group but it's really rare even among adults that we just embrace our awkwardness and just they're like yeah i'm different i mean really truly that's an that's just an awkward thing for us to even think about it It makes us nervous. If you'll be fair and kind of evaluate yourself, you'll, oh man, you'll feel the tensions of that. It gets to be a scary thought. even among Christians, it's rare in our day to find Christians who purpose to live as outsiders to the social norm. Scripture speaks about this. I I think one of the passages most powerful to me is when Jesus is talking to the churches and he talks to the church in Laodicea, you remember that, and he rebukes them for being lukewarm, neither hot or cold. They're really no different than anybody else. In my lifetime, the church that we have experienced in the West has bent over backwards, worked tirelessly to tell the world, we're just like you. We're no different than you. We're just like you. But light is different than darkness. What Justin just read to us from 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, listen, who called you, set you apart. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's not the same. That is different. If they were the same, they wouldn't be called exiles by Peter. Instead, he would address them as elect citizens. But they're not citizens of this world, they're not. The same grace that is powerful enough. To declare you righteous before God is powerful enough to transform you in this very life. From old to new. From same to different. Listen, from insider to outsider. See, if you're an authentic Jesus follower, you're going to be an outsider in this world. You can't avoid that. You're going to be an elect exile in this world. Paul makes a promise to Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy 3, 12, "'Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life "'will be persecuted.'" "'All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus "'will be persecuted.'" But listen to what he says in verse 13. While evil people and imposters, the fakes, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, they just continue on in the same. But Paul says to Timothy, but you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You are different now. Not the same. Does that sound like a cultural insider to you? No, that's an outsider, an awkward exile, elected, set apart to identify with Jesus. And to identify with Jesus is to be different. is to be pulled out of darkness into the light you're going to look different you'll be awkward in the world you once lived it's going to play out that way that tension is going to be introduced to your life And one more quick disclaimer let's be careful that we're not simple it's a temptation for all of us as christians we have a great tendency to underestimate the cultural influences behind our worldview and our conduct. Many of us will be tempted to say, yeah, I live differently. I take stands. I want you to think more deeply this morning. As a believer, I want you to be challenged. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will pull the layers back on Sins and strongholds that are hidden from your sight. See, because so often in ignorance and sometimes just flat out excuse, those stands that we take, they are more culturally affirming to the group we belong than biblically faithful. They're more aligned with belonging to our group than being transformed by the truths of Scripture. In other words, we like to take the stands that are safe, that are comfortable, that get the amens from our group. But we don't like to take the stands that would see us look like an outsider in that same group, even if Scripture is clear to call us to it. Let me give you an example, just so you get what I'm talking about. Family sitting there, they're watching TV. Just watching a TV show on a Tuesday night. They got some popcorn. They're watching the TV show. And the next thing you see on the TV is two gay men begin to kiss. Dad grabs the remote, turns the TV off, says, we're not going to watch that. We're not supporting that. That's sin. That's wrong. TV off. Okay. Two nights later, it's a Thursday night. They're back in front of the TV and they're watching TV again. This time it's a show that celebrates adultery and sexual immorality and violence throughout and language and whatever else you want. And they just eat their popcorn and watch on. Why didn't they turn it off? Because it's right? Because it's holy? Why did they turn it off two nights before? Because they're going to turn things off that are wrong? Let's just be real. That's more culture than scripture. The inconsistencies of it, the breakdown of it, is influenced by our group, by our settings, by how we approach it. And by the way, if you turned it all off, man, your friends would think you were kind of crazy. You ever feel like some stands are in step with the group? while others feel unreasonable or harsh or judgmental is that feeling really biblical exposition in your life or is that cultural instinct it's an important thing to think about and I know immediately we begin to think and we wouldn't say it this clearly but if I lived in pursuit of Christ-likeness according to scripture. I won't be able to be missional. They'll, They'll misunderstand me. No one will listen to me. That makes no sense. That's like trying to convince someone you're trying to share Jesus by not telling people about Jesus. makes no sense what we're really afraid of is that my friends and my family will walk away from me they might slander me they'll think I'm hateful or harsh they'll think I'm different they'll twist my love and label it hate and I will no longer be an insider but I'll be an outsider Frame those concepts in your mind as we read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer... For human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Elect exiles are resolved to suffer in the flesh. That's our big truth. That's what we want you to see right here in the text, beginning in verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, as an elect exile, understand that suffering is a prelude to glory. This was the case in Jesus' sacrificial life and death, and this is our case as we identify with him. We identify with Jesus. Listen, church. We identify with Jesus, not only in his victory to come and the kingdom to come, but we also identify with him in his suffering in this world. Let me try to frame it for you another way. We're not ashamed of Jesus in his kingdom When every knee bows and every tongue confesses, and it is clear that He is Lord, His will rules. But many are ashamed to identify with Jesus in His suffering in this world. See, they want to identify with Him in His kingdom when it benefits them. But they don't want to identify with him in this world when it brings suffering. You ever had friends like that? Kids, are, You can see that in kids a lot. Like if they're isolated and it's just one or two of them, they'll hang out with that kid. They'll be their friend. But they get around another group and for whatever reason that group wants to pick on that kid, all of a sudden they flip. I don't want to hang out with them anymore. You ever watch that happen? You ever be that person? We identify with Jesus fully, completely. That means we identify with him in this world. We're not ashamed of him in this world, in this setting. That brings context to that whole idea, right? That's throughout the New Testament of being ashamed. Mark eight thirty-eight. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Paul the apostle writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians three fourteen, if anyone does not obey what he sees in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. You wanna talk about a counter-cultural view, Paul, an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, instructs the church to lead others to feel shame. Yeah, that's a thing. You have to chase that one later, all right? But watch what's happening. Why? Because they refuse to identify with the word of God. They protect themselves. They don't identify. They don't. Go into repentance and turn and change. They don't follow Christ. They follow their own passions. And that's why Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1.16. He's saying this because he's trying to explain, I'm going to come to Rome. I'll stand in your midst. I'll face the ridicule and I'll proclaim Jesus. Why? Because I'm not ashamed. And if I suffer for it, so be it. But I'm not ashamed in this world. You say, why are you chasing all this? Because it's the context. Peter's going to go on in verse 16 here in chapter 4, and he's going to say, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Elect exiles are resolved to suffer in the flesh. They are unashamed to identify with Jesus in this world. They know it will set them apart as an outsider. And yet they are resolved to this end. Why? Because Jesus is their Savior and He suffered in this world. And they are resolved to identify with Him. He is their goal. Not their comfort, not their status, not their gain. He and He alone is their life. And they identify with Him. And so Peter writes, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. In the Bible, the Christian life is constantly described as a fight, a struggle, a battle. The Jesus follower as a runner facing adversity, a warrior facing a bombarding enemy. Why? Because identifying with Jesus, we live differently We're not like everyone else. We're aliens now in this culture because we strive not to go on sinning because we are being transformed because inside every Jesus follower there is a stunning revolution taking place. The work of the Spirit conquering and overthrowing the sin nature that is within you. Beautiful battle As you are sanctified into the image of Christ you know most of us know little about taking up arms we've never been in a war but in such a fight diligence focus discipline man these things are critical it's not a luxury to focus it's not if I get around to it no it's critical so Peter waits his point and says arm yourselves. It means exactly what it sounds to mean. It is a defensive military term. Arm yourselves. He could have said prepare or get ready, but no, he says arm yourselves as if your life depends on it. Why? Because in this battle of the Christian life, there are consequences and there are enemies and there are forces at work against you and the fight is at hand the enemy is over the walls through the gates the enemy is bombarding the city and what comes next will not be easy What comes next will change your life. What comes next will bring suffering. What comes next is here if you are in Christ Jesus. So take up your weapons. Arm yourselves. Man, it's not the only place in Scripture this is talked about. You see this throughout the New Testament. Maybe most famously in Ephesians 6 where we're told to take up the armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done all to stand firm see if you're an authentic jesus follower and you're identifying with christ and living toward his holiness listen you don't have to worry about initiating conflict it's coming for you it's promised arm yourselves with the same way of thinking Peter says a way of thinking and attitude a worldview, the way of thinking that Christ would lay down his life would suffer for something bigger than just his own comfort notice the assertive connection here it's really important don't miss this between arm yourselves and way of thinking arm yourselves it is purposeful it is proactive it is intentional it is resolved it's not passive it's not reactive man we are lazy thinkers (laughs) we are we're lazy thinkers we're so quick to say that's over my head that's for somebody else We're so quick to fill our minds with entertainment and just focus is hard for us. I mean, our minds are so undisciplined. I mean, even in this very setting, how many times have you texted somebody already in the service? How many times have you looked something up on your phone, been distracted? Like, think about it. You know how hard that is for us? I'm not like preaching at you. I'm saying, Me? It's a cultural thing. You know how hard that is for us? It's hard. We're so undisciplined in our mind. And Peter is saying, stand firm. And the power to stand firm is to set your mind on Christ and be resolved with the realities of what lies ahead. As a warrior prepares for battle setting his mind to see through all the harsh realities present and ahead so you elect exile be resolved to fight through the suffering ahead focused on the glory that is the Son of God Jesus you know every day Christ suffered on this earth knowing more was coming knowing the cross drew near. every day knowing the cross drew near therefore with the same resolve take up your cross stop thinking you're entitled to something else stop thinking if God loves you he'll spare you suffering stop thinking your top priority is the comfort or safety of your family stop thinking the desires of your heart will not lie to you stop thinking your Christ-like attitude it's just gonna happen that resolve will just happen instead arm yourselves with Jesus's way of thinking as he suffered in the flesh be resolved to identify with him By doing the same, be resolved to suffer in the flesh. The rest of our time, we're going to chase through some big ideas pretty quick, okay? They're all right here in the text, and they're going to unpack it. And the way that I really think they kind of flow, again, is to kind of help answer an obvious question. Why not resolve to avoid suffering? Why not resolve to avoid suffering? That makes sense to me at a very fleshly level let's be comfortable let's not suffer that just seems very basic to me so why would we do these things different as elect exiles quickly our first big idea elect exiles live a life of submission for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin now real quick it's a great plug get some commentaries and study along with us this term cease from sin is a great term you can go back and study it and look through it Uh, the ESV study Bible gives like a three-sentence kind of really brief kind of unpacking of that all the way to like Shriners commentary the New American commentary on first second Peter gives you like pages on it again great resources get one of those read through it study some of these things but I want to get you to the context of this passage as quickly as possible. The ceasing action of sin, the ceasing action in this life of sin, the taking off, the putting off, the removing, the repenting, turning from, this ceasing action is not completed without the suffering of the flesh. So what does that mean? Death to self brings suffering to the flesh. Death to self brings suffering to self. Taking up your cross brings suffering to the flesh. Consider Matthew 5, plucking out an eye that hurts. Cutting off your hand, yeah, that's going to hurt. So the point, you cannot experience the grace of conquering sin in this life without the suffering of the flesh. You will not live in Jesus without dying to self. These things go hand in hand. Therefore, if we identify with Jesus, we submit our will our comfort. As Peter says in verse 2, we will live for the will of God and not our own passions. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter is talking about this present. He's talking about right now. He's not talking about heaven to come. He's talking about this life, the rest of the time in the flesh, he says. And the point that I want you to see here is notice the focus, the motive, the focus. It is different now. Do you see it? It was before. Before I identified with Jesus, it was my human passions. But now identifying with Jesus through saving faith, it is the will of God that drives my life. That's different. That's a change. And so elect exiles live a life of repentance verse 3, for the time is past or for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, in other words, unrestrained conduct think think hedonism just whatever you want to do passions lust drunkenness orgies drinking parties all three of these directly connected back contextually to alcohol and lawless adultery this idolatry was so prevalent in their area their traditions their cultures their festives or their, their festivals all kind of centered around these things that were pagan in nature. And while insiders, living for themselves, they took part in these things. But now, as elect exiles, as outsiders, they proclaimed such conduct, such self-centered conduct, is foolish they've wasted enough time in the past on such things and like many places in the New Testament Peter lists off a few of these obvious examples just as an aside and as a rabbit because it's prevalent and I just want you to hear the wisdom of the word I want to focus in on just one of these headliners that is consistently in these lists throughout Scripture I want to talk to you for just a second about alcohol and some of you have heard really bad sermons over the years I want to just be as clear as I can with you and by the end I'm probably going to upset everybody all right listen the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol in and of itself as an absolute sin it does not condemn most things specifically as an absolute sin And it does not condemn alcohol as an absolute sin. It just doesn't. However, the Bible forcefully emphasizes, and by the way, that word forcefully, that's what it means forcefully emphasizes the danger of alcohol and its repetitive nature in declaring it generally unwise. Again and again. Here in verse 3, this drunkenness, these Really, the the literal translation would be like drunken orgies and these social drinking parties are called out. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13, Paul doing a very similar thing says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. To the Galatians in chapter 5, he writes, And there are so many in our day that when they look to alcohol, they are so fast to scream freedom and they are quick to emphasize in these verses that it's talking about drunkenness. And it is. It's also talking about sexual immorality. And which of you as a parent is going to sit down with your teenager when they ask you how far is too far and just scream freedom after saying sex? No, you won't do that. You're going to teach wisdom, and you're going to teach pursuit, and you're going to teach it in its context. Notice the connection to wisdom in these passages. It's explicit in Ephesians 5 verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but filled with the Spirit. See, wisdom stretches beyond just, it's right, it's wrong. And wisdom walks alongside of the Jesus follower and points them to Christ's likeness. It prioritizes edification. You see that in the wisdom literature in the scriptures. So Proverbs 23, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smooth. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Proverbs 21 Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So, what are you saying? There are so many who are super quick to scream freedom, and so few, painfully slow to cry danger so if you're going to scream freedom ask yourself in your biblical exposition where is your cry for danger where is your cry for wisdom because they should line up and if we peel back the layers on such things we'll realize that Man, our concerns don't always just line up with the expositional understanding of Scripture. There are some that are probably here more concerned about the dangers of me reading words in the text of Scripture in the presence of your kids than you are filling your homes with alcohol. There are some that are convinced that it's a bridge to being an insider. And such takes are just anchored in human passion. The freedom, yes, you have freedoms, but you've been bought with a price. Called to Christ's likeness, proclaim what is wise, proclaim what builds up, point to what is danger. Yeah, you can explain through it, you can talk through it, study through it. No freedoms, yes, but elect exiles. They live in such a way that creates these tensions constantly in their life and among their groups. Why? Because the holiness of Christ is the thing that drives them. So back to our main context here in 1 Peter 4 as he goes through this list. The elect exile lives a life of repentance. The things they used to do, the way they used to think about those things. I'm different now. I don't do those things or I think about those things different. I've repented and turned from them. Live different. You don't die to self. You don't do that kind of a thing. You don't walk away from the traditions that you've been a part of, the culture that you've been in for 20, 30 years. You don't walk away with that with a light reason. And that reason that leads you to turn, it gives testimony through your conduct, a conduct that is no longer in line with others. And so as a result, next big idea, elect exiles, live a life of ridicule. Verse 4, with respect to this, this meaning the believers no longer engaging in their former conduct, they, the unbelievers, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Different, you no longer live for self and those passions that you now know are foolish. And as a result, those people you once engaged in that same conduct with now look at you surprised. They don't understand. Why wouldn't you do those things? Why won't you participate? Why won't you join in? Why won't you think like us? And so they judge you. They ridicule you. They malign you. They slander you. They make you an outsider within the group after all your actions proclaim judgment on them I think that's one of the things that gets in our way within our culture it is not our own judgment but if we identify with Christ if we live as light in the darkness we will in fact be different we will live differently and in our conduct that is different It will have reason and rationale. We will acknowledge that we no longer live for ourselves, but as an ambassador of Christ, it is our conduct that proclaims Jesus is Lord. Not me, not you, him. That flies in opposition of this world. And an unashamed Jesus follower doesn't hide Jesus proclaims him in speech, lives him out in action. And if the world rejects him, then that same world will reject you. But in the end, they are not the judge. In fact, they will give an account to the judge, as we all will. Final big idea as the team comes up, Elect exiles live a life of hope. Verse 6 For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, it was a common criticism. Why would you be a Christian? Christians die. You suffered. You didn't take part in any of our parties or our festivals or our traditions, all this fun stuff that would fulfill your human passions. You didn't live for self, and in the end, you died. What do you gain? So the unbeliever is pushing back. They are questioning and criticizing and saying, you gain nothing, you only lose. But Peter says to the unbeliever, they have a limited perspective. They judge as people judge. But one day, the unbeliever will stand before the judge. And not only the unbeliever, but the believer who lived a life resolved to identify with Jesus. And regardless what suffering that may have brought on them, unashamed, their faith in the Son of God. They weren't losers, they weren't outsiders. Listen, they were just exiles in a world that was not their own. But in the spirit, as God is in the spirit, They will stand before the one true judge and belong at home, an insider for all of eternity, redeemed in right standing with God. And you know what will not matter in that moment forever into the future? The suffering and the ridicule and the slander from the people that do not matter, whose opinions hold no weight before the judge. Why? Because they identify with Jesus and joint heirs with him, the kingdom of God is theirs forever and forever. Because they live for a hope that is beyond the circumstances of this world. See, that is what we proclaim in saving faith as a Christian That left to myself, I have no hope. But there is life in Jesus. And I will turn and die to self and my human passions and all those things. Why? Because He is worthy of my life. Because He and He alone is the judge. Because before Him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is the one true God. This is the hope we live for. So elect exiles, Jesus followers, church, listen to me. Be resolved to suffer in the flesh. Let me say it another way. Be resolved to identify with Jesus, not just in the victory to come, but unashamedly in this world right now, today, this week. He is worthy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our life. And so Lord, in this very moment, I pray that through the sanctifying work of your spirit, you would grow your church, that you would give us wisdom to see the things that we hold on to, the strongholds, the human passions that we are unwilling to let go of. Father, that you would lead us in your grace and your mercy to repentance. Lead us to boldly identify with you. And Father, that you would give us a peace, that you would give us a faith that would withstand, that would hold, that would have the resolve to suffer if need be. And Father, if there is anyone in this room who doesn't know you, Father, I pray that through the work of your spirit you would convict them in this very moment that there is no hope and only death in their human passions. But in your son Jesus there is life. Father, make this known to them. We pray in his name. Amen. Church would you